If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The next podcast is a bit different from our normal fare. What you're about to hear is a lecture from our recent virtual Medieval Life and Death event, where we invited five medieval historians to speak on various topics related to everyday experiences in the Middle Ages. Our content director, Dave Musgrove, introduces the speaker and runs a short Q&A with them afterwards. If you want, you can watch these lectures on our website at historyextra.com forward slash events forward slash medieval dash history dash event. In this talk, Sally Dixon-Smith discusses medieval love and marriage. Right. Welcome once more to the BBC History Magazine and History Extra Virtual Medieval Life and Death Day. Uh, this was an event that was due to be held uh, in uh, in person in London and York, but we had to cancel because of corona. So we've got five speakers talking about various aspects of medieval uh, society, life and society, uh, and we're putting them on virtually. We've asked the speakers to deliver their talks uh, over their laptops, sitting in their in their studies and spare rooms, and uh, and uh, and and, get, and delivering them for us like that. So, uh, so we are presenting those talks for you now. Uh, and our next speaker is Sally Dixon-Smith, who is a medieval historian and architectural historian and formerly a university lecturer. She's particularly interested in how law, including church law, affected people's everyday lives in the Middle Ages. And her talk today is on medieval love and marriage. So Sally, over to you. Thank you very much for inviting me to talk at this day on uh, medieval life and death. What I want to talk to you about today is medieval love and marriage. And I'm really going to be talking about the period from the 1100s to the 1400s, which saw some big shifts in marriage practice and also um, conceptions of love or how those ideals of love were applied in everyday life. I'm also going to be talking about majorities. So I'm going to be talking about the majority of people who in Western Europe who were Christian. So I'm going to be talking about Christian marriage. I'm not going to be talking about Jewish marriage or Islamic marriage, which obviously both existed in medieval Europe at this time as well. Um, I'm also going to be talking about the majority of the Christian population who did get married. I mean, this is a period that we particularly associate with monasticism, with monks and nuns, um, with not getting married. Um, but for by far the majority of Christians, marriage is absolutely normal. It's part of their lives. It's what shapes 
uh, how they live every day, their households, who they live with, their social contacts, their networks. And um, it's sort of estimated that probably um, about fi- only about 15% of people in this period didn't get married. This marriage is also a really important tie that bound in medieval society. So it's a very important way of making social connections. So I think it's interesting to think about medieval marriage today, because, of course, marriage is something that lots and lots of us still do today. And I think that even um, completely non-religious civil ceremonies today some of the concerns or some of the ways that those are addressed or performed reflect um, both practice and issues and debates that were there in the Middle Ages. So, for instance, saying your vows or making your declaration in the present tense, uh, doing this in front of witnesses um, is is something that is, is common to civil marriage. Also, I think at the moment, um, particularly, there's been quite a lot of debate about changes in marriage law and this idea that traditional marriage is something very static and unchanging. And I think if you look at the Middle Ages, you realise that actually what was traditional marriage then might actually be rather surprising to us, but also that it is something that changed and adapted and it wasn't monolithic and it wasn't just... You know, never changing. And I think that's can be quite surprising as well. So I'm going to start out with a few, few words about love in the Middle Ages. And this is slightly complicated because in English we have one word for love. Um, but in the Middle Ages and particularly in Latin, the Latin of the Bible, Um, They had several words for love and the chief among them that I want to talk about that both have an impact on on marriage is firstly agape in Greek or caritas in Latin. And that is the idea of um, which is sometimes translated into English as charity. But that's the idea of sort of altruistic love, the love that binds God and man the love between members of the Christian community that binds them together, sort of altruistic love, a spiritual love, um, the idea that it's unselfish and that it's putting others first. And so when in the New Testament it says, things, it says very, at various points, God is love, it's this agape or caritas type love that is, that is meant. The other type of love um, that I want to talk about here is eros or in in greek or amor in latin so sexual love um and as i say we only have the one word to describe various quite different ideals and um ideas about different types of love um and so it's actually when when looking at the church's approach to love um, and marriage, it's it's to do with the spiritual connectedness of 
marriage, how it can create spiritual connections between man and God, between the people actually in the marriage and between their families. And this idea of also that marriage can be used for peacemaking. And this actually has really quite important um, ramifications in terms of some of the rules about who and how you could get married as a Christian in the Middle Ages. So one of the things that the church is very concerned about is that Christians should marry outside of the group of people they're already related to in various ways. And this is because marriage is a bond that can create love, friendship, compassion, and can be an incredibly valuable tool in peacemaking. So if you like, it's a shame to waste it on people you're already bound to, that you already share interests with. And you can see that in the Middle Ages, you know, marriages are often part of peace treaties um, on a national scale, but also on a more local scale. Um, There's a strong assumption by the church that love affection, caring for the other person, putting them first, is something that will develop in marriage. Um, Great if you've got it beforehand, but that this is something that that will grow through working together within the marriage. On the other side, there's sort of the erotic love and sexual love. Um, Sex, of course, from the from the point of view of Christian theologians, the only sort of safe place for sex, if you like, is within marriage. But of course, we're talking about a time where, particularly in literature, there's there's a great burgeoning in what you know is referred to now as romance literature, not because it complies with necessarily our idea of what's romantic, but because it was written in romance languages. And a lot of this is about love um, and is about what's sometimes described as courtly love, this idea of um, particularly a knight on a quest, um, sort of devoted to his lady, who's often completely unobtainable, um, potentially an adulterous type of love or lust, and something that actually, in contrast to the sort of agape caritas, which is about unselfishness and altruism, if you like, an awful lot of courtly love um, is actually about honour and about sort of self-interest and about trying to get what you want out of things. Um, There's also a big sort of crossover between the ideas and ideals of courtly love and the concept of lovesickness and love as something dangerous also that this kind of obsession with with somebody else um, can be extremely socially disruptive but also can actually damage your health uh, this idea of sort of knights and other people pining away and particularly that love sickness is is a male disease and the only solution for it is to get the woman you want so this whole this whole idea of both um, what we tend to call courtly love and also love sickness is something that becomes a literary trope in Europe um, in the 12th century, but actually originates um, in um, the sort of cultural revival renaissance in Baghdad in the 8th century, and then from from that from the from the interaction between um, Arabic writers and troubadours. Um, and Western European, this becomes, four centuries later, something that becomes very clear in in literature uh, produced in the Romance languages. So there there are these two very different ideas or types 
of love. Um, and the other thing also about lovesickness is that I said it's a male disease. It's also kind of presented as a kind of affluenza. It's like only rich people have time for this. Um, actual, you know, working people, you know, can't go around not eating, not sleeping because they're thinking so much about about their lover. Of course, although there are these quite sort of different ideals of sort of spirit, or the easiest way to put it is spiritual love and sexual love. Of course, sexual attraction played a part in marriage for most people. And it has been argued also that because in the Middle Ages, people might get married after not knowing each other for very long. The idea that they agree to marriage might actually have quite a lot to do with sexual attraction, apart from other considerations. So on this whole idea of marriage and peacemaking and creating bonds across society, you actually do see that um, sort of explained by kings as well. So, for instance, um, when the French king makes peace with the English king in 1259 and his own barons think he's been much too generous and he shouldn't have done that, um, one of his reasonings is that his wife, the Queen of France and the Queen of England, are sisters. Um, and so it's absolutely wrong that this family should be at war, that because of those marriage bonds, because that they are already part of one family, that it's it's wrong that they're turning against each other. So you get this idea of um, sort of wider social relations being related to that idea of love and marriage binding Christian society together and and in effect creating non-aggression pacts because you're all part of the same family and so why would you harm yourself? So there are not only very different ideas perhaps to our ideas about love today but the period that I'm talking about is also when matrimony is becoming holy if you like. There are, are big changes in um, church jurisdiction over marriage. Now, people often, again, sort of assume, oh, traditional marriage, Christian marriage, church is always involved. Of course, church and Christian writers and others had always had plenty to say um, about uh, marriage and sex and how it sh you know what should go on. But the actual idea of having an active jurisdiction over it, something where the church can actually... Um, you know, really not only advise people but tell people how things are going to have to be um, is a medieval development in this period. And so um, it's really theologians and canon lawyers um, in the 1100s who decide that uh, after an awful lot of debate that marriage is holy um, it is a sacrament it's one of the seven sacraments um, and that also, and I think possibly this is not something that most of us think of uh, first thing when we think of marriage. Um, marriage is not only to do with sort of peace and love in that Christian sense, but it should really symbolise or does symbolise the union of Christ and the church. And so that explains an awful lot of their ideals and visualisation about marriage and how it should be conducted is this you know the highest symbolism that uh, um that's completely central to christianity um now because uh of this sort of extension of 
church jurisdiction over marriage, it means that an awful lot of the evidence we have about how people actually conducted their marriages is from when they went wrong um, and when they end up in church courts. So essentially across Europe, there's, there's a whole legal system run by the church. And if you have, if you like, a question or a query or a dispute within your marriage, then you will go to the church court for it to be resolved. Um, this, of course, doesn't happen overnight. And it's also, I think, important to say that while um, the church is interested um, in extending its jurisdiction over marriage, it's also a two-way street. It's that Christians want their marriages to be correct. They want to have answers. They are approaching the church. They are, right, you know, right sort of high ups in society, writing to the Pope to sort various things out. And so some of the law, um, as well as being driven by uh, theological ideals, is, if you like, based on case law and precedents and what Popes have made decisions about in the past. But although this seems sort of quite highfalutin philosophy and theology, because also in this period there's this huge explosion of preaching um, to the extent that preaching can be seen as a form of mass communication. So actually ordinary people um, had a lot of access, if you like, to these the-, the-, the theology and canon law and how it applied to their own lives in this period. So when they're having these debates in the 1100s, um, one of the key things that uh, the churchmen are thinking about is what makes a marriage. How how uh, what do you need to get married? And their their conclusion is the thing that makes a marriage is the freely given consent between the two people involved, um, and nothing else. So this is perhaps surprising in two ways. Firstly. You don't need to have sex to make a fully proper marriage. The consent itself is what creates it. Also, it's your own consent, the consent of the couple. It's not the consent of the family. It's not the consent of the father. You, and you don't need those under church law. It tended to be that generally in society, People thought that both consummation and getting all the proper permission was rather important. But technically and legally for the church, these things don't matter. They're in favour of um, people having their own free will and being able to create marriages um, without being forced into them and from their own volition. And... You can see this, if you like, it's sometimes been described as as uh, sort of free love. It's not quite free love in the 60s sense, but this idea that you do have your own choice um, really carries on for an awful long time. Um, and so it's possible for com- couples to defy their families. Um, it is possible for couples to sort of run off and get married. And in fact, when the, the law finally changes in England in the 17th century, and sorry, the 18th century, and you do need your parents' permission, the law remains the same, does unchanged in Scotland. And this is why you get sort of couples from England who are getting married without their parents' consent 
going over the border into Scotland and getting married in places like Gretna Green. So this kind of freedom of choice is very important. So consent makes a marriage. How do you exchange consent? There are three ways, really. Um, The first is words of present consent. Um, So if you like the I do's. So this is literally saying there's there's no set phrases. You don't there doesn't have to be a specific set phrase, but it's something along the lines of either I marry you or I take you as mine. And it's it was normal and it was expected that parish priests would teach their parishioners something appropriate, something that also shows that priests are not necessarily there and don't have to be there when you're getting married. This is something that you can do on your own. Um, and so. Once you've exchanged those present words of present consent, you are married. This is for life. This is indissoluble. This is an absolutely legally binding bond. There's also um, a second way of getting of exchanging consent, which seems to have been actually the the most usual way to get married in the Middle Ages. And and this is exchanging words of future consent, like I will marry you, yeah, let's get married, and then expressing your present consent um, to to marriage by having sex. And so this idea of you agree to marry, then you have sex, the sex um, sort of means that, yes, you mean it here and now, you want to be married, now you're married, it's indissoluble, that's for life, that's done. Um, And you see this actually being used uh, to sort of enforce within within society as well. So there was often a feeling that, in fact, um, single people having sex with each other wasn't a great problem, something that obviously the church did consider a, a big problem, fornication. And so what tends to happen sort of later in this period is that if you like uh, people who are living in sin, who are sort of notorious couples who are having sex but not getting married, can be hauled up before church courts and made to publicly get engaged so that if they then have, decide to have sex again, they are married, whether they like it or not. And um, it's it's called under pain of marriage, if you like. So this marriage used as a, as a, a kind of penalty, if you like. So besides being able to give consent by verbally and also verbally plus physically, there's a third way um, that was for, of, of showing consent and exchange of consent um, that was far more gestural. Um, and this is actually a gift exchange. And so it's normally when a man gives a woman something that represents the desire to marry or the agreement to marry, and the woman accepts it from the man. And so technically this is called a subaration. And it can be anything, um, as long as both parties understand what its symbolism is. But it was often a ring that was given by the man to the woman. And this 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 thing um, that means marriage in Middle English is called a wed. And so a wedding is when there's this sort of gift exchange, there's this giving of a gift that people understand means the creation of a marriage. And 
so there are these sort of three ways of doing it, but often people might do um, a combination of all of these things. Um, they might actually, um, although the church would consider them married after any of these things, they might do several um, to sort of further publicise their marriage or sort of bring it from a more personal commitment done in private to something more public. I think what's really interesting about uh, ways of getting married in, in this period is that it really shows you words and deeds are legally binding. Um, you don't need um, it to be written down. Um, you don't, although, and so, so in that sense, it's very different to Jewish marriage. Um, medieval Jewish marriage, you know, had the ketubah, had the written contract. Christian marriage doesn't have to have this, though. As the period goes on, more people do um, have have written um, contracts of marriage, and it seems to also vary across different parts of Western Europe on how important that so that is. So it, it's much more common um, in Italy, for instance, for marriages to take place in a civil building and also um, before notaries there and also in southwest France. It seems to be um, much less common um, in England. And the fact that this also gesture is, is so powerful and can bind you for life means that there are actual warnings from the church not to muck about with this. So the statutes of Salisbury in the early 13th century actually give a warning about this, that you shouldn't muck about with this incredibly potent symbolism of the wed, of the wedding. Um, and it says it says that um, young men should be really, really avoid putting anything vile or precious on a woman's hand in case they accidentally bind themselves in marriage. Um, even though you might think that you're joking um, that you've actually pledged yourselves to the burden of matrimony. And you can see with these kind of um, ways of giving consent, sort of verbally and gesturally and verbally plus sex, that there can be confusion and actual genuine confusion um, between couples about whether they are married or aren't married or you know disputes. One thinks they are and one thinks they're not. And you can see this reflected in um, some literature. So, for instance, um, in Troilus and Cressida, Chaucer's Troilus and Cressida, um, there is a scene where, it, and the word that Chaucer uses is playing, they exchange their rings. And it's fairly clear that he th thinks they're married or considers them that, that they are married, and she doesn't. So given these were the ways to get married, where did people get married? Um, and the evidence from church courts is pretty much anywhere. Um, because you can contract this completely legally binding thing on your own, or well, obviously you need someone to marry, but you don't. You don't need a priest. Uh, you don't need a notary. It's just about words and deeds. And so you get examples of people getting married as they're travelling on a journey together. You know, at a party, round at friends, sitting in a window embrasure, down the pub, behind a bush, in bed. Um, and also co there are common areas, uh, com common locations for betrothals and marriages, so gardens, halls, possibly at your employer's house um, and things like this. Now, of course, this kind of evidence um, from the church courts is about marriages that are disputed, but the witness testimony shows that it was not seen as out of the ordinary to get married wherever. 
And also, a marriage that was conducted in that way would be upheld as a proper, fully binding legal marriage. Now, ideally, Christians shouldn't just get married just between themselves, even though God is the ultimate witness and sees everything. Ideally, they should get married in the face of the church, in fasti ecclesiae. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of, it's a slightly ambiguous term that means in the church's presence. And of course, there are different ways of, of interpreting this. So in the presence of the church could mean in front of other Christians who are members of the church. So having other people as witnesses. It could mean in front of a member of the clergy, um, obviously, uh, the church, you know, the church as 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 priests and, and and clerics, or and this seems to be something that s- sort of develops specifically in England, quite literally in front of a church, and so um, this idea of getting married not in a church but at or by or near a church, um, and again, priest doesn't have to be there, but it's this idea of also just getting closer to the sacred to kind of lend if you like, that sort of glowing radioactive sacredness to to your vows by being close to a holy place. And so you get um, uh, sort of extra fancy church porches, for instance, being added to older buildings. And this is because these are areas that are used specifically for, for weddings um, and also as part of funerals. Um, also, another place where people got married was sort of at the gate at the entry to the churchyard. And sometimes those are quite fancy as well. And so um, so the thing here is that essentially you can get married where you want, but in order, but a lot of people do choose to get married near a church, if not in a church. There was a proper, if you like, proper marriage ceremony available with a priest, but you didn't have to have that in order to be legally married. So as we can see, it's actually incredibly, possibly stupidly easy to get married. Um, And these are normally described as impediments to marriage. I think the easiest way to explain it is if you think of you know, um, if you're either writing a job description or looking at a job description when you're applying for a job and they have the sort of columns of essential and desirable. So there are certain rules about marriage that are essential. So, for instance, you have to marry another Christian. You have to marry somebody who is available to be married. So they can't be married to somebody else and they can't also be kind of bound to the church by a religious vow. And bigamy is actually used as a word in the Middle Ages for this kind of um, having two bonds at the same time, uh, a bond to the church and trying to get married or um, or in, um, at the same time. And it's also used um, for what we would call today probably serial monogamy. Um, and why this is seen as uh, bigamy comes back to this idea of the symbolism um, if you like, the, the symbolism, the, the, the Christian spiritual symbolism of marriage representing the union of Christ and the church, it's you know, the ideal and best marriage is just one person with one person. 
of course, if that person dies, you are free to get married again. But that second marriage somehow is, is if you like, less spiritually potent or doesn't have quite the perfect symbolism because there's always this ghost of the previous uh, relationship and the previous marriage in the background. However, having said this, though, you know, from the church's point of view, it might not have been as spiritually wonderful. Um, second and subsequent marriages were very, very common. Um, and again, um, as far as you can sort of develop statistics in the Middle Ages by looking at a, lot, a great deal of evidence, um, it's it's clear that most people who were widowed or um, did go on to remarry and that this was very normal. But I think it it may also explain why for people who have been married several times, they choose to be married next to the first spouse. And it's not necessarily because of greater love uh, for that spouse. I think it's more to do with the fact that that marriage was seen as more correct and, as I say, more symbolically perfect than the later and subsequent marriages. So you, yes, so you have to have to have these essentials you've got to marry a christian uh, you've got to marry someone who's free to get married um and then there's a whole lot of things that are if you like in the desirable category so ideally um you shouldn't get married to someone who you've been committing adultery with because that legitimizes or or puts a sacred spin on something that's sinful um and you also so there, so as I say, there are these sort of essentials and desirables that are the various rules about marriage. Getting into a marriage is incredibly easy. Getting out of a marriage can be incredibly hard. Um, divorce, in our sense of the word, of ending a marriage that everyone accepts was absolutely fine, uh, just really doesn't exist. And this is another word, a bit like wedding, um, that has quite a different meaning in the Middle Ages. So the word divorce or divorcium is used but it means either an annulment so that means that say you did marry someone who was already you know married to the church therefore that wasn't a marriage so it's just it's null and void it's a null it's annulled it was also used for a type of legal separation that was granted incredibly rarely Um, And normally due to really extreme domestic violence and sort of threat to life. And that meant that there's sort of permission given for the man and wife to live separately. And this is the separation. This is the divorce, if you like. But they're still married. They're not free to go off and marry anybody else. Because of this idea that that marriage is is for life um, and it's indissoluble, The first contract you undertake is the binding one. And this could have quite interesting outcomes in real life, particularly given what I've said about how easy it was to get married and how people could actually be mistaken. So, for instance, um, to give a a very high profile example, um, uh, Joan of Kent, who was an aristocrat in the 14th century, she's a granddaughter of Edward I, and she goes on to be the mother of Richard II. When she's 12, she uh, enters into a completely secret marriage um, with a knight in her family's household. He then goes off on campaign. 
Then her family themselves organise um, a, a marriage to another aristocrat, big public, in church, the whole business. And so she's married to him. But her first husband, her secret husband, comes back from campaign and says, what about me? And is basically ignored. And so he saves up um, to press his court case and he takes it to the papacy and he manages to prove that, yes, he was married to her first. And so after about seven or eight years of her second husband, if you like, her public husband, her church husband, thinking they're legally married... No, she is ordered to return to her first husband. And so you you get these these sort of quite to us quite extraordinary things happening because of these various principles about what marriage should be um being enforced. But people could also manipulate these rules. So as long as you're willing to commit perjury in court, you could say, well, yeah, I'm not terribly happy with my marriage, but what if I decide to swap for my old boyfriend and if he's up for it? And then we'll both, you know, declare that we previously did get married, but nobody really knew about it. And then I can get out of my current marriage and go you know, go back to a pre-existing pre-contract. Um, and People do clearly manipulate the system in, in this way in order to get out of marriages. And you do get court cases also where um, people actually admit during the court case that they're lying. And so obviously the, the court case ends. But this, because it is so difficult to kind of get out of marriage, this is why there's there people, some people at least, are manipulating the rules. And the church is also very keen to make sure that they're aware of these loopholes and that they are changing the law. So they're closing them. So one of the, the, the big essentials, if you like, for marriage is, again, to do with this Christian idea of love is that you shouldn't marry someone who's already related to you or too closely related to you. And there were various ways of thinking about uh, whose family, whose kin, who's already bound to you in the Middle Ages that may be quite different um, to ours today. So there are quite extended incest bars, much, much wider than is common today. So this is called con the impediment of consanguinity. It means you're related by blood. Um, and... This is one of the big changes that the, that the church actually makes to get round one of these loopholes that they think people are using. Because initially the rules are you can't marry someone who's related to you by blood within seven degrees. So there were actually different ways of counting degrees in different parts of Europe. But potentially this could mean you can't marry someone with great, 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 great grandparent in common. There's one way of counting where you count up from one partner to the joint ancestor and then down again to the other partner, and one way where you just count up to uh, the joint ancestor. And so you could see that this could be used, and the church was obviously concerned that it was being used um, in the 12th century, and particularly by aristocrats, to get out of marriages or to marry to, so that they would be, so they could say, that their first marriage was invalid, was annulled, and that they're free to get married to somebody else. And so in 1215, at the Fourth Lateran Council, 
um, massive council of the church, one of the big changes that's made is that they sort out exactly how you're supposed to be counting degrees of blood relationship. And they also say it's within four degrees and you're only counting up to that joint ancestor. So they're making it much smaller and much more manageable, hopefully, that people do know who they can't marry. Another type of kind of bond and relationship um, that prevents marriage is affinity. And this can be created in various ways. But it's, I suppose, the easiest way to describe it or the most common one is the idea of your in-laws. Um, so because of this, marriage is an absolute union where two become one. It means that you become really related to the family of your spouse. And so you can only get married within so, so many degrees within that kind of affinity pool. And, and the third one, which is more surprising to us, is something called compaternity. So you can't get married to someone who's either your godparent or has stood as a god godparent to your child. And again, it's all to do with this idea that you're already bound spiritually and, and in sort of Christian love with these people. So, and there is a sort of an acceptance, and you see this in, in church discussions of it, that there's, if you like, real incest um, and real lines that shouldn't be crossed. And then there are these sort of desirable, wider ideas of incest and who you shouldn't marry. And so um, this this can also... Uh, cause weird and interesting problems where people either bring up these things after the after the fact or want to later marry somebody that has already stood as godparent. So, for instance, with Joan of Kent, and I was talking about her secret husband and her public husband, when she then marries, she's a widow, and she then goes on to marry um, the son of the King of England, Edward the Black Prince. Technically, um, she shouldn't have married him because he is godfather to one of her children by her previous marriage and this actually does cause issues and they have to do various things um, to to kind of make up for it one of the other essentials when you're getting married is about age of consent and people being old enough in order to enter marriage um, and because from the, the point of view of churchmen marriage was the only spiritually safe place for sex it means that Christians have to be able to get married as soon as they might want to have sex. So in other words, um, from the age of puberty onwards, and this was normally regarded as about 12 for girls and 14 for boys, but depended on the individual. And it was also seen as a point at which you were mature enough to give your consent to a lifelong bond. Um, what happens in practice is that you're much, much more likely to get engaged or married young if you were from a rich and powerful family. Um, and so you can see this a great deal in, in royal marriages. So, for instance, um, Isabella of Angoulême, who's married to King John, was about 12 when she got married. Eleanor of Provence, um, who's married to Henry III, is also about 12. Um Eleanor of Castile and Edward I are both teenagers, uh, sort of 13, 14, when they get married. However, um, as I say, if you're not in that top echelon of society, you would tend to get married old, at an at a 
older age, whether late teens or mid-twenties. And this is seen, this has been described as a sort of European marriage model that applies for most of Western Europe, tend to get married, um, as I say, so a bit later on with the man being older. And, and why it's sort of correlated with wealth is it's to do with being able to be in a position to set up your own household, to, to be able to provide for the marriage. So in terms of providing for the marriage, as well as this consent that, as far as the church is concerned, is the only thing that matters, that makes the marriage, there were lots of other exchanges that happened at marriage. Um, and in effect, at almost every level of society, people had a prenup um, and sort of things were put in place for... Um, what would for what would happen if one partner died or when one partner died, um, and also what would happen or what would support the children of the marriage? As far as the church is concerned, it's consent that makes the marriage, and you exchange your consent in various ways. But there are lots of other exchanges at marriage, um, and this is what makes marriage. I, th- I think also quite surprising in the way that the church is so involved in it, partly because obviously um, it's a sexual relationship, but also because it's it's a legal relationship that's often to do with land holding, to do with land changing hands. So almost at every level of society, there'd be the equivalent of a prenup. There'd be um, discussions of what, uh, you know, what was available to the couple to support them during their marriage, to support one of them once one the other partner died, and for any children of that marriage. And so um, sort of dowers which tends to be land or money that's to provide for the children, and also dowry. Um, This is sort of wealth or possessions that the the woman brings to the marriage um, were things that are actually exchanged at the point of marriage as well. And this leads to also this this whole idea of how involved is family uh, in marriage. Of course, if, if a family is if you like, dividing up resources to support various people's marriages, they tend to want to have something to do with it. So although the church is clear you don't need your parents' permission, again, in practice, it's much more socially normal, if you like, that families and affinities have quite a lot of say in matchmaking, in um, recommending people um, to marry each other, and also in making the agreements between families. It also means that uh, there's this whole sort of norm within society that you ask permission, and you don't just ask permission of your family, um, or even as people do today, the the father of the woman that you want to marry, but you also, um, this this kind of patriarchy is also part of lordship. So it's normal that you would ask your lord's permission to marry or your or your king's permission. And in fact, um, there's actually a, a fine, in, which is in England called a merchant, which is actually a sort of like a fine you pay to your lord in order for permission to marry. Um, and equally, right at the top of society, kings are expected to consult their barons about who they're going to marry and who their children are going to marry. And um, barons and uh, are also expected to, um, rather like the merchant, find between, for a, between a peasant and a lord, they're expected to ask the king, and they're expected, because they 
are a vassal of the king and devoted to the king that they won't marry in a way that does him harm so that they shouldn't marry his enemies. Um, they shouldn't marry someone who's going to be politically embarrassing uh, to him. So there's, by the 14th century, there's much, it's much more likely to get family interference in who you should marry if you're younger, if you're a woman, if you're a firstborn child, um, or if you're rich. Um, and it's, it, men were generally more likely to be able to initiate and have uh, initiate marriages and, and decide who they personally wanted to marry. So again, I think this is quite a different conception. Again, you've got these various ideals and sort of debates floating around in society. Church says you can marry anyone uh, and it's up to you. Families want a lot more to do with it. And it's much, much more normal to marry very closely within your own social rank. And sort of marrying outside your social rank is really regarded often with a sort of visceral horror that this is totally wrong. So um, in conclusion, I think it's, it's really interesting to look at love and marriage in the Middle Ages and just to remember that these are not, even though the same, a lot of the same words are used, these are not the things that we recognise necessarily. Marriage practice and law is very different then to how it is now. It's also not static, um, but it's something that actually changes and you have big changes in the law and also in social practices during the Middle Ages. I think also within the, the kind of theology um, of the church, it's really important, again, to realise that there's a huge amount of debate. So I was saying, you know, the idea of matrimony being holy develops in the 1100s. But even in the 1300s, um, university scholars are still debating this. How holy can marriage really be? Um, and if it really is wonderfully holy, then why can't the clergy get married? And I think um, the, the main point I'd like to make is that you can't assume that by love and marriage, people meant the same things we do today. Um, but it is clear that much as it is today, marriage was incredibly important bond within society. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. That was a, a fascinating talk. I learned an awful lot. I, I, uh, I didn't realise the, uh, the the bit about uh, people getting married outside churches, and that's why you have those uh, ornate porches and things. That uh, that uh, makes sense when you think about it. So, so that was brilliant. I have some questions. Um, I've always wondered about uh, uh, the, the 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 law of um, I'm going to mispronounce it consanguinity. Um, uh, and I've always wondered about that, particularly in the context of uh, medieval society being in the in the lower orders in the villages, people you know staying in the same village for generation after generation, uh, and people not really moving very far. Now, perhaps that's perhaps that's just not a, that's not an accurate reflection because if there were these laws that said you couldn't marry so far back in time, your your marriage pool is getting very limited if you're living in a small community of a hundred, two hundred people. So, how does that how does that square? Um- I think it's also this is absolutely valid question. I think mm -hmm. I think one of the things that is worth thinking about is that 
it would be possible to know who you're related to because of those very close communities and the idea that there might be four or five living generations. In fact, part of the marriage sort of blessing for a woman is that is hope for her long life and that she will see four or five generations after her um, coming from the marriage. And so this, that there is this ability to actually know how fussed people are about it um, is another thing. And I think, but, you know, I was talking about sort of change over this period and where the church, if you like, uh, gets involved and it extends its jurisdiction the most earliest is where people really want their marriages to be absolutely legitimate and their heirs to be absolutely legitimate. So we're talking about the top rank of society. So kings and queens and nobles tend to be more worried about this and also much more likely to come into conflict with the church about it. Really, I think at a parish level, um, you start to really see concern about these things in the 14th century. And also, actually, uh, again, through church legislation, you can see that there are people who know they're too closely related, even within this kind of contracted four degrees of relationship that comes in in 1215, who intentionally run away to get married in town, and particularly in London. There, there are sort of um, promulgations by the Bishop of London about couples who are intentionally going to London where people don't know them, don't know that they're related, so that they can get married. So hopefully, when presented with a fait accompli, the, the village and also the church will accept it. And I think it's part of this playing with these I ideals I was talking about, about what's essential for marriage and what's desirable for marriage. And I think, whereas some of the church laws are very strict, the application can be quite varied across different levels of society, both in terms of how involved the church gets and how bothered people are about it. Does that okay. answer your question? It does, yeah. No, that's very good. Um, another thing, um, we, we get quite exercised uh, nowadays, or at least we used to, um, uh, we still do a bit about the, the, the idea of the man popping the question. Um, and I know that you know nowadays that's that's not necessarily the case, but certainly a few years ago that was that was the norm, and and you know has to. Um, you talked a, a lot about how it, medieval marriage was uh, something that was jointly agreed, and and both parties had to agree. So was there any sense that you know that the, the male partner had to actually ask, uh, and was that was that a concern? And were women able to ask, or does that is not really part of the story at all? I think it's it's still more normal or it's still more normal in those that period for men to initiate uh, the marriage or the marriage conversation obviously doesn't have to happen that way but I think again there's there's this sort of contrast between um church ideals and christian ideals that the the two partners are absolutely equal in marriage and the actual social reality which is that um, women are, if you like, the lesser partner in marriage legally often. So, for instance, at the point of marriage, their lands are become under the control of their husbands. And this idea that, in fact, it isn't an equal partnership and that you have quite different expected roles of husband and wife. So I think you do you do get situations where it's clear that, that you know the couples just agree amongst themselves but i think this idea that that men ask the question or men initiate does come from this period as well 
Okay. Um, I'm, I'm wondering a bit about how some of the ceremonies and uh, and uh, apparel that go around today's wedding, how, whether they go back in time or not. Um, marriage bands, where the, you have to have your the, the bands read out in church. Was that? It sounds like that wouldn't have been required. Abs- no, absolutely. Bands is one of the develop. I didn't mention it, but it's one of the big developments in this period because of all these. Because it's really easy to get married, but there are all these rules and regulations about who you can and can't marry. In 1215, the church says you have to have bands. So they introduce the idea of publicising marriages uh, before they take place. And it still doesn't mean that the marriage has to take place in church. It can still happen down the pub. But it's 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 a case of that the local community should know about it. And obviously that's something we still have in this country and in a lot of other countries within civil marriage. Um, the way it happened in the... In, in the Middle Ages, is that it has to be announced on three different um, holy days with at least one normal day in between. So it might not take three weeks or a month. It might be able to happen within a week, these announcements. But this idea of bans is very important for sort of, if you like, flushing out and and having any potential problems with the marriage come to light before the marriage takes place. I think the big difference... Um, with the Middle Ages, is that if there is a problem, it can still be raised years after the marriage. So as you can see with Joan of Kent. And there's another there's another good um sorry. So if there is if there is a mar- problem with the marriage or why people shouldn't have got married, it the whole idea of speak now or forever hold your peace, then it's much more speak now or Speak later if you want to, and (laughs) that that can still completely undermine the marriage. And this is why bans is a medieval development and is a really important one. Okay, brilliant. Um, What about uh, uh, stag do's, bachelor parties, hen do's? That's obviously big business nowadays, and and it seems to have become a a, you know a a massive thing in the last few years. Uh, I I I can't imagine that medieval people were going off paintballing before they got married. But was there like a a a pre-wedding booze up or anything like that? Is there evidence for those sorts of things? Um, there there are evidence. There's definitely evidence for kind of marriage feasts. So I, I suppose the, the equivalent today is what we still call, for various reasons, a, a marriage breakfast, don't we? Even if it happens mm. in the middle of the afternoon. But the idea yeah. of the party for the family and friends after you've got married. Um, I'm sure celebrations did happen beforehand as well and with the friends and all the rest of it. But I, I have to say, I can't think off the top of my head of sort of any great stag and hen do stories from the Middle Ages. That's a shame. <laughs> Um, what about uh, names? I was having a very interesting conversation with a historian uh, yesterday, actually, about uh, personal names in the medieval period and how uh, over the over the course of the medieval period, surnames became a became a thing. Um, and now, obviously, there's a there's a well, it's not obvious at all. There is uh, uh, some expectation that women change their names to the men's parts. Sometimes it goes the other way. But w- is that a, re- a medieval uh, institution? Do we see women changing their names to follow the men's? Well, the whole notion of surnames as we have them today is really a medieval development in itself. Um, and it's done in different ways. But the idea of a surname that remains the same down the generations also starts to develop in, in, in this period. So what I mean is that it's, you know, you might be Dave, son of John, and your child might be Eric, son of Dave, <laughs> 
you know, you don't actually have the same surname. It's all about who who you're related to or who your father was. And particularly um, that idea that, that that's what identifies you as your father. Um, but obviously you start getting names that begin to be carried within families and also um, names that aren't just about sort of patrilineal, but are also um, uh, job title names like, you know, carpenter, baker, all those sorts of things. Um it's kind of difficult because women are normally referred to by just in the same way that everyone tends to be referred to this is not necessarily the same in Scandinavian countries but by there's that default of who your father is women are described in legal documents by who their father is or who they are married to but I don't think because you're not you know people aren't sort of signing documents people aren't using their names in quite the same way that we do. Um, as a woman, you will be described relative to, if you like, the most important man in your life, but that's not necessarily quite the same as taking on their surname. Does that make sense? I mean, it I does. think um, hi- higher up in society, um, of course, um, it's, it's, it's absolutely normal that women um, are referred to by... Uh, the surname of their of their of their husband. So, for instance, um, and this was a big scandal that the King of England's sister Eleanor um, got married to Simon de Montfort. And the reason why it's very scandalous is that she she was a widow and that she had actually promised to join the church. So it's this whole idea of bigamy. Has she already made a promise to the church? Has she already? Um, made a made a you know is she free to marry but she's normally referred to as Eleanor de Montfort or in a lot of documents as the king's sister because he's because he's still the most important male in her life okay good right one last question um uh which is um you talked about sort of the visceral horror that people had about marriages between social groups are there, are there any examples of that happening though did, did have you ever come across people who marry above or below their station um, it's relatively uncommon, but you do get a lot of concern about it. So, for instance, um, there was one example that um, Rosenthal um, found of um, an aristocrat who's so concerned, you were saying about, you know, a small marriage pool and all the people that you're already related to. He's so concerned that he's not going to find someone who's appropriate to marry who he isn't already related to, that he kind of gets a blank check dispensation in advance that he can get married to someone he's related to within the third degree rather than the fourth degree. So when he's going out, if you like, marriage shopping, it gives him it gives him a, a, a greater pool to choose from. But I think there's, I mean, you can see this a bit later than when I was talking about, but something like the marriage of um, Edward IV of England and Elizabeth Woodville, and, you know, she's sort of from a minor gentry family and that that scene is really inappropriate. If you like, the king shouldn't have, if you like, squandered his marriage on this on this person when he could have used it for peace alliances and all sorts of things. Also, you know, she's been married before and there are all sorts of, you know, concerns and, and lots of sort of really spiteful things said about her, but because of this social disparity between the two. 
Well, thank you for that. You've, uh, I, I have loads more questions, but uh, but we haven't got time to answer them. Um, and uh, hopefully we will have this uh, a wrap-up session after this where um, uh, people watching and listening can uh, can put some questions to you as well. So um, so we will hopefully have a chance for a few more uh, at the end of this event. Um, but uh, for now, Sally Dixon-Smith, thank you very much for that fascinating talk on medieval love and marriage. I'm much informed and I hope our listeners and viewers are as well. Thank you. That was Sally Dixon-Smith talking about medieval love and marriage. If you'd like to watch this lecture, a video is available at historyextra.com forward slash events forward slash medieval dash history dash event. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Hey.